0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike Davina. Let's get started. Hey, it's Mike and Davina here, and thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Today's episode, we've got none other than Jamie King. Now, if you're not familiar with Jamie, Jamie has done some amazing work in the prog metal genre. He's worked with bands like Between the Buried and Me, The Catortionist, and so many more. And inside of this interview, we get into some really cool conversation about his personal approach to working in the prog genre. Prague is a very different ballgame than working on most rock music or pop music. And it's often very complicated. There's a lot of musicality and technical parts and lots of layers. And Jamie has a really interesting approach to how he works on arrangements and getting tones. And inside of this episode, we get real deep into that. And he has some really cool perspective on how to approach working with these musicians and with the genre and so that you can get the best sound. And we get into some really cool discussion about guitar tones. That's one of the things that I really love about Jamie's productions. He's got these amazing guitar tones. And inside of this episode, he gets real deep with discussing what his signal chain looks like when it comes to recording guitars and how he processes the sound. And he's got a really cool approach to getting the right tone for the right riff, which is pretty unique because a lot of people tend to talk about getting the right tone for the song. But Jamie's approach is for the riff. So... It's really cool to get into that discussion and understand why he does this and what goes into the decision-making process for him. So inside of this episode, I know you're going to find a lot of great stuff, especially when it comes to recording guitars. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into the interview. Jamie, thank you for being on the Mastermix Mix podcast. How are you doing? Doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For people who might not be familiar with your background, can you give us a little bit of story on how you got into this industry and ultimately where you are today?
1: Well, I mean, of course, as many engineers, you know, I, got, I started with music as, you know, a p- performer. You know, I decided I wanted to play drums at a young age and, and watching my dad and uncle play. And, uh, you know, I, was, I, I did, you know, I had bands doing thrash metal and progressive, you know, metal and uh, all throughout high school. And, uh, you know, I had started recording on four track just to capture ideas and things of that nature. And I kind of noticed I felt like I had a knack for getting decent sounds. Even with a four track, we had like a, a PA mixer and some stuff for live sound, some outboard gear for live sound. And I would sit the band up through that and mic everything up and we would record the whole band to one track. And uh, And it was funny because, uh, you know, I felt like the tones that I was getting uh, like that was actually better than some of the professional demos that other bands in the local area were getting with real studios and uh yeah you know, i think it's mainly just because i understood you know the types of sounds the, the style of, you know the style of music that that we were doing in other local bands i understood those sounds and most the you know back then studio equipment was really expensive and uh, you know only the older you know generations could afford that stuff and they didn't understand you know the, the emerging thrash metal and uh, you know, the progressive, uh, metal styles of music at, of the time. And, uh, they didn't really even like this type of sounds that we wanted. So they wouldn't give them to us, you know? And, uh, but I was able to get that with a four track and I started with four tracks and eventually upgraded to some ADATs, I think around 1997, uh, which are digital audio drives for those who might not know. Um, uh, but that was an upgrade in quality, obviously from a four track, uh, cassette recorder. Um, uh you know i could actually get you know pretty professional sound that way and uh you know obviously the first bt bam record was recorded on adats and uh you know my my band swift's first records were recorded on adats and things of that late nature or whatever but the uh but yeah that's kind of how i got started It was kind of out of necessity honestly like uh, you know i had uh we had with the bands in the high school i had gone to you know, large format studios even you know, started in some basement studios and local, um, you know, smaller studios, but then, you know, weren't getting the sound qualities that we were looking for. And uh, so we eventually, you know, you know, went to a $90 an hour large format studio, you know, and spent like 15 grand on an EP and it still wasn't good. You know, still they didn't give us the tones we were going for. And it was like, you know, at that point, you know, this is, I guess, 1996, 97. I decided it's like, well, I can't afford to spend more than this, uh, you know, unless in, until the, you know, unless the band gets signed, like we just, it's not going to happen. So I guess I'm just going to have to figure this out myself. So I just decided instead of spending more money to record with people. I would just figure it out, you know, buy the gear and figure things out myself. And, uh, you know, I recorded my band's first album. And then I guess the uh, Between the bear to be guys heard that record when they were in prayer for cleansing and, uh, you know, and amongst other bands, a, a local band called Beloved, uh, another great local, uh, you know, Christian hardcore act, uh, but yeah, they heard my our recordings and they, you know, asked me to record them. And, and at that time I was working out in my parents' basement, you know, it's just a basement with concrete walls and tools hanging up and exposed insulation. And uh, the room actually st- strangely sounded good at odd angles <laughs> and the insulation, you know, worked as diffusion and, and stuff of that nature. So that actually was, the recordings were actually quite decent. You know, I'm doing a lot of remixing right now of the old records and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of 20th anniversary plus type of uh, things going on and uh you know surprised at how good the, the tones actually the raw tones were you know i didn't have the equipment and the knowledge to to get the mixes and production the way i wanted but uh, uh you know the tones were actually solid you know with but really inexpensive budget gear and uh you know that kind of all ties into the you know what's going on now you know with you know everybody can record at home you know as in essence that's what i was doing even back then you know it was one of the early the guy early guys that was would actually Was actually doing using budget gear and recording everything out of my parents' home. And I was able to actually turn that into a career of sorts. And, uh, but yeah, that's how I got started. And obviously, I saw the need to get into Pro Tools so I can do the production editing, things of that nature, get, you know, doing more advanced mixing and uh, stuff of that uh, stuff like that. And, you know, and, and here I am just 20 some years later, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess I've been doing this for, for a living since 2001. So uh, approaching 20 years, uh, doing it for a living.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a, I, I feel like your story is very similar to a lot of people where it's, you know, that necessity feeling of, you know, we just spent so much money at this big studio and the results are still horrible. And there's a couple of things that I, that I got out of what you just said, where, you know there, just, it, again, this kind of re-emphasizes that fact that, like, it's not about the gear that you're uh, that you're working with, right? Like, you know, you can have that million-dollar facility and it, have a person who doesn't know how to drive the the ship and, you know, it still yep. sounds like shit. Versus now, you c- can have all this great affordable gear and probably get much better results, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you really don't need much at all anymore, you know. You get, like, you know, an inexpensive interface, you know. I guess drums, acoustic drums, you know, is still kind of, uh, you know... I guess uh, I do, you know and it was. This is one of those things you can throw some money at it, and it's going to sound more like you're accustomed to hearing. You know, uh, if you do uh, put some money at, you know, the proper mics and some good preamps and things like that. But everything else, honestly, I mean, you know, you can almost do anything with an inexpensive uh, preamp and a couple mics and a laptop. You know,
0: definitely. And, uh,
1: you know, obviously, a lot of people sidestep the drum thing with programming drums. You know, I'm not the, you know, I'm not a huge fan. I understand the uh, the convenience and. You know the the writing uh, benefits from using program drums and things of that nature. But then you know now, I mean, you, I mean, if you're really good at the programming, you can get a very convincing sounding, uh, you know, uh, program drum sound. You know, they're real samples and things like that. done with real gear and things, and uh, uh, so if you know what you're doing, you have a good good programs and good samples and that thing, you know, stuff of that nature. You can get a really just uh, convincing and usable uh, you know, program drum sound. You know, and, and then just not have to, you know. Re- pay to record uh, real drums in a studio or set your own studio up to record real drums. For
0: sure. And as a drummer, I imagine that you would, you know, you can identify those little nuances that, you know, the singers or the guitar players can't necessarily pick out in the program drums, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. It drives me insane. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, like I said, you know, there's some people doing a good job with it, but I can, you know, it's just something about the hi-hats and the rides and things. You, it just... You know, it's, uh, and a lot of times people program, they're not necessarily drummers or they don't, so they don't end up programming, programming them drummerly. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, that's five things being hit at one time. That's physically impossible. And, (laughs) you know, the, uh, and they just somehow it slips through and, you know, stuff like that, you know, Uh, but, you know, my main gripe about it is, is, uh, you know, if you're going to use program drums, just go ahead and use electronic sounds and, you know, different sounds and stuff. Like, don't try to make it sound like a real kit, you know, um, you know, my thing is like, if you want a real kit, then use a real kit. And, you know, there's something about the, uh, you know, a, a drummer's, you know, the imperfection of a drummer, you know, like the dynamics and the, uh, uh you know, the, the tempo fluctuations and, and, and subdivision fluctuations, things like that, that makes real drums like it. You, you know, there's subtle things that it, people do even, even when they're not consciously thinking about it, that really adds to the song oftentimes, you know, uh, makes a moment more explosive. You know, they might, you know, play a chorus and just really, you know, slow it down a little bit or speed it up a little bit or, you know, make it hit so much harder. So there's little nuances like that that I think the average listener, they they can't they they wouldn't be able to articulate, but they can feel it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh you know a lot of bands are selling themselves shorts by going the all programmed route, you know, all the time. But having said that, if you're going for a really mechanical vibe and you want a machinish type sound, then uh oftentimes the program drums are all the way to go you know obviously there you can get the precision that you can't accomplish with a, a real drummer so i guess it just depends on the aesthetic uh, you know and the desired overall production value you're going for in your stuff and uh but yeah i think uh you know it's not there's some there's just some artists you know this this would obviously be better with real drums you know and i hear you know and they you know, there's obviously an expense element uh, and time and skill element involved in producing drums, you know, real acoustic drums. Uh, But I guess that's what we're here for, you know, hopefully uh, we can steer people in the right direction and there's, there's resources out there so you can learn this, uh, these these skills and things like that. And, uh, you know, use your drums to uh, program drums to, to write and come up with the ideas and stuff and, uh, you know, demo and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, for your real record, you know, uh, either, get in with a studio that has the setup and, you know, get hire you a session guy or, you know, find a guy who will do it. You know, there's tons of amazing drummers out there. You know, you just got to call, call on them, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. A- another thing you had mentioned earlier that I thought was really interesting. And, and it's something that I've also experienced with when I listened to my old recordings too, is that, you know, you had mentioned you listen back to those old recordings and like, you got great tones, even though you didn't really know, like you didn't have the gear or like what you thought you needed, you, but you were still able to get those right tones. And, um, it's something that I find is like, it's it's really interesting to look back at those old recordings because it's almost like that um, the fact that you don't know anything makes you just figure it out and get those tones as yeah. opposed to like thinking, well, like, well, I need this piece of equipment and then I need to do this and gain stage it this way or mic it this way or whatever. Like, I think as you get older, sometimes you learn these like so-called rules of how to properly record things that it kind of sometimes that can sometimes get in the way of like the the real vision of like am i getting the right tone and uh yeah i'm curious to curious to get your take on that when you listen back to those old direct recordings if you feel the same way
1: absolutely yeah i mean like yeah, you know you know with the i think you know many people go through this you know you when you start out you like hey i like this recording i want to learn how to make things sound this way and like my whole goal was to you know and, and when i started there was no youtube there were no podcasts you know i had to just read books talk to people recorded to my favorite with my favorite producers and engineers and and a lot of those guys you know they they were guarded industry secrets you know things like reamping, you know it's been done since the 70s and they just didn't you know you couldn't go to school to learn that they were like keeping it secret you know subwoof you know like uh sub mics for kick drums reverse wired speakers and things they're like oh these are secrets you know i'm not telling anybody how i got our sounds you know (laughs) you know now all that's the cat's out of the bag you know of course uh you can get all this information but when i was first starting you know i was having to experiment to try to figure out my own way of getting those sounds and you know, and I, now that I'm older, I'll go back and listen to sounds. and like, you know, I've gone back over the years and listened to things. And I'm like, you know what, the way I used to do stuff with, you know, it might be actually better. You know, it's like it was more unique for one, you know, cause you know, you know, as you develop as a producer, as an engineer you know, I think there's a value in having a sound, you know, that's unique, you know, especially now, you know, there's like to cut through the clutter you know, you have, you know, your campers and your, all your drum programs and your plugins and things. So it's really easy to, for everything to start sounding the same in metal and rock and, and stuff like that. You know, I mean, you could literally have the exact tone that this band used and stuff of that nature. Back then it was, you know, with mic and a real amp and all the different amps and, you know, with tubes and their variations of, you know, where they are in the burn cycle and things of that nature all affected the sound. And, uh, there's almost, uh, you know, inherent just by default, you're going to get something kind of different and unique. Just because you didn't know what everybody else was doing, you weren't using the exact same gear that everybody else was using, you know there was like this uh, so I think in some ways it, that you know it was it, it was better for creativity, for uniqueness, and uh, you know, and all that helped bands that you know uh, cut through the clutter, you know a lot of times. You know nowadays it's it's really hard to get noticed as a band and you know the instinct is like, hey, this band is successful. They sound like this, so we should sound like that also. I think you know on the surface, that seems like a logical conclusion to draw, but in the end, like what true success, you know, that might help at first, you know, get attention from that band's fans. But if you want true success, ultimately you have to be an exclusive product and uh, you know how you record the tones you use and all that stuff, um, you know, if you' con- if you can find something that's actually good and that resonates and it works for the material that you're doing and you know, to create a sound, uh, you know, I really think that ultimately will help the artist succeed more so. And then which helps you as an engineer, as a producer, succeed as well to help, you know, to help these people achieve this sound, this you know, this exclusive sound. It helps you cut through the clutter. I mean, there's so many bands, there's so much content online nowadays. I think it's probably more important now than it even was then, you know.
0: And it's funny, too, because, you know, what's out right now and what's hot right now by industry standards, like that stuff was recorded typically, like a year ago, or, or sometimes in some cases more too, right? So Absolutely. what's being recorded right now is going to be the new big thing in a year from now. So yeah. to try to play that game of catch up is is impossible.
1: Yeah, I just don't think it's the older I, I get, you know, the more I realize that it's, it was never a wise thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing to learn, like, okay, how's everybody doing this, you know, or, you know, and, and, and to be able to get like industry standard sounds you know sounds that are you know because you know you get you want to make the client happy and oftentimes you know i've experienced with mixing and mastering and things like that people they want their stuff to sound like something else you know and you have to be able to do that uh with a lot of clients you know i try to you know let things sound the way they sound naturally you know um personally just just like hey let's let me take the tones that you have brought into record let me take the tones you sent for mix let me take the stuff you've mastered i'm gonna do like just broad strokes with this stuff and let's see if it sounds good see if you like it and then you know let it sound the way it sounds that way hopefully there's a, a chance of it being different and original you know instead of trying to force it into some uh, you know you know, mold some preconceived notion of what it should sound like, and things of that nature. And uh, you know, but obviously, some clients are like, "Hey, we still don't like it. We want it to sound exactly like Periphery or whoever." <laughs> and it luckily nowadays, it's virtually possible. You know, you can grab the Nolly, get good sounds, and you can get the, uh, you know, the Axe Effects pre, you know, or the plug-in you know, the uh, amp that he used, whatever. You know, it's it's pretty. You know, if the guys can play like the guys in Periphery, which is probably not the case, but if they can. Uh, you know then you can get a pretty close sound and uh, uh, you know to for to make a living you know as a producer or whatever that that's important but I would say to those at home you know trying to uh, uh, trying to craft something I would say just you know don't worry about that too much you know like you know just from experience and wisdom and watching other bands and you know the bands that I've worked with that are successful have a unique and you know sound you hear 30 seconds of them and you know who they are by their vocal tone by their guitar, Riff choices, by the amp tones, by the drum sounds, uh, overall production, things like that, and I think that's what's—I'm pretty sure—that's part of why they're as successful as they are. And uh, so, you know, I—I'd say just spend more time on the art, you know, not this this whole the the details of all the recording and all this stuff, you know, if it's, you know. You know, having said that, it's got to sound good. You know, there's uh, obviously some people, you know, uh, they're fine with stuff that doesn't really quite sound good enough, you know, stuff out of tune, out of, you know, off time, you know, uh, you know, too, too much can really turn people off. You know, I think that's, uh, you know, since the alternative day, you know, there was a time when you could be really loose, really out of tune, really off time. And it was kind of cool, but uh, we're definitely not like, you know, we're definitely not there at this current time with most listeners, and, uh, you know, and rock and metal specifically has a hard enough time, you know, in, you know, with, uh you know, appealing to the masses as it is. So there's a certain production value that needs to be there. Um, but like I said, it doesn't have to be as specific. It doesn't have to match what someone else is doing and uh, things like that. It just needs to be good, you know, and uh, and but unique, I think, is uh, more of an important quality than, uh you know, than generic.
0: For sure. And I think you you hit the nail on the head earlier, like you have you have to you still have to know how to achieve those results. If someone comes to you and yeah. says, I want this sound, you still need to know. And, you know, whether you think it that, that that is the ultimate sound the band should have, like, that's just another tool that you now know how to do, right? And, like, you can implement yeah. it and, you know, integrate it however you see fit to make it work for the style of music you're working on. You know, it, it, it's funny, like, when you think about, like, I think a lot of rock music is is kind of derived from pop music in a way and pop production like you know the tightness and like the samples and all that kind of stuff like that was stuff that was being used forever ago and it took a while like the rock guys wanted to be the edgy guys and do something a little different and then like all of a sudden you know you got a guy like bob rock or whoever is like adding samples to the to his mixes and everyone's like whoa like what what is that like how, how do we get that right and like now now the metal world the rock world it, like everything's super tight it's sampled it's tuned it's like you know it's very interesting. yeah I mean it
1: it works for different you know like you know there's I think the sweet spot is somewhere in between you know I think you know like you know there's I think there's a point where in the past things have gone too far you know and I found myself you know I've got some OCD tendencies and you know early on I found myself you know quantizing too much, tuning too much. you know I was really like you know because I just you know the OCD makes me want to make everything as perfect as it can be, you know technically. And then, you know, I realized pretty soon in, I'm like, this isn't, isn't the way to go. You know, this is, this is actually taken away from the music. When you step back and come, or you come back and listen to the music later and you're like, this is really sterile sound. And, and, you know, and, you know, a lot of, you know, old schoolers from my generation, you know, we have this, we feel like, you know, a lot of the new bands, they're, they're technically better as far as players and all this stuff. But why is the music not better? You know, why is this like, don't, it doesn't resonate or stick with us more? You know, even though it sounds better, it's like the old stuff doesn't really sound that good. It just something was more impactful about it. You know, maybe it was because we were younger then. uh, That could very well possibly be a big component of that. But I think a lot of it, you know, is like I said, it's just uh, they they strip the life out of it, strip the humanity away from it. And it's like, And even though they're instruments, you know, there's still a performance element, more so of a performance element in the old stuff than there is in the the modern stuff. But, you know, like I said, you can start, you can, you can do things that don't necessarily, you completely take the performance element out. Like, like you just mentioned, you can do, you can blend samples, you can, you know, you can do some, you know, uh, you know, production things that kind of, you know, give that the bigger sound the wow factor the, the more you know uh, more articulation things of that nature without completely stripping it of its humanity i mean there's an art form in there you know
0: uh, absolutely that,
1: you know and it's uh you know some people have it naturally that that, that notion of what you know how much process you know uh, how much of a process sound you should use and some people you know go overboard with that and uh you know and you know, they have artists that may never achieve success because there's, you know, it's doesn't resonate with people for whatever reason.
0: Absolutely. But, uh,
1: but yeah, like I said, it kind of takes experimentation and it's different. Like I said, it's different for different genres, different specific, it depends on the aesthetic you're going for. And, uh, you know, uh, So the super raw sound works for some artists, and the super produced sound works for some artists. You know, and then just uh, just uh, it depends on which. If you're working at home on your own stuff and recording other people, you know, it's just finding the sounds and the production values that work for what you're going.
0: So then you do a lot of production roles as well. Like as a producer, how involved do you like to get in making those decisions? On behalf of the uh, on behalf of the band.
1: Uh, well, it, it varies. It depends on the client what they want. You know, oftentimes, you know, most of the stuff I do is uh, in the progressive realm these days. Uh, you know, so you know, most of the clients I you know have coming in, they they pretty much come in with the basic idea of what they want. You know, they it's, it's, we're not making pop records, so there's no rules. You know, it's just basically whatever sounds cool. And uh, uh, my approach, my personal approach is what I like to do is. You know, let the band come in, you know, if I'm recording the band or if I'm mixing the band, I just like, I, like I mentioned earlier, is just take what they have, their ideas, try to incorporate everything, let, let you know, let them try all that out um, first and see how it sounds. You know, I, you know, I was, when I was younger, I was, I was guilty of, of like jumping to conclusions about whether a part's good or not, or a tone is good or not um, too early you know i'd be well like you know because i you know a lot oftentimes i like, i don't know if that bass is going to work that doesn't match the guitar at all you know it's kind of taken away you know type of thing and then then i found out later oh there's your keyboard part and the bass ties in with that and the guitar now i see and you know i, I would be I, you know i was guilty of making the argument too soon so uh you know so a lot of times i, I like you know the you know, I come from the band. I come from that band that tried to hire a guy to record and express my vision, and they were unwilling or unable to do that, and it was frustrating. I spent lots of money. You know, I literally it was like, hey, man, can I get a good attack on the kick drum? We were fans of Metallica and Pantera and stuff like that, and they all had, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> you know upper, you know, high-end attack or whatever in the kick drum. is not normal for other styles of music. And, you know, I'm paying 90 bucks an hour, and you expect – you tell the guy, Hey, we all want some attack on kick drum. He, he was just like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? No. It's like, <laughs> you know, you take a guy to paint your cards, like paint it red. And they're like, no, I'm going to paint it black. It's like, no, you're not like, and it's, it blows my mind. So I still carry that anger and frustration <laughs> to this day. So I put myself in their shoes. Like I'm going to do what they want me to do, even if I don't like it at first. And and then I'll, I will you know, I'll give my opinion if it's not working. Luckily with the product the tools we have with Pro Tools and all the doll recording situations, a lot of stuff is very reversible, very changeable. Uh you know, it uh, you know it can be, you know, obviously uh time consuming and uh you know I guess uh disheartening at times to have to change things, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's very possible. Back in the day, you know, what you recorded is what you got, you know, and uh you know without having to re-record everything. But nowadays, like I said, um you can you know you can record make sure you record the direct guitar so you can reamp change the guitar tone later if uh, if what the client wanted is not you know working i could be like hey can we try a different guitar sound this feels like it has too much gain or you know it just uh or uh, drum sounds and things of that nature you know you can uh, you can you know sample blend or swap out drum samples and our eq totally different like you know i try to mic in such a way where we can uh do more ambient type drum sound with room mics, or we can do more in your face, dry drum room, uh, or drum sound. And, uh, and so there's a lot of flexibility. You can you can make these production decisions on the back end. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to do that. Like I said, most of my clients, they come in, they're not really looking for me to help them write their songs and, and things of that nature. You know, I might have, you know, if I feel like there's something that can add some drama to the, to the mix, like in terms of production effects or like adding a vocal harmony or or, uh, you know, guitar harmony or, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a percussion instrument or a keyboard part or something, if I feel like, hey, this is thin or this, you know, could use, you know, I, I try to always put myself in the listener's shoes. You know, I try to be, because, you know, when you're, when you're intimate with the music, when you're the writer and you know the music and stuff, you hear it all in a different way, you know. It's like hearing your voice back. You know, when you hear your voice in your head, it's different than when you record it and you hear it back. You're like, I sound like that, you know. I honestly believe music is largely the same way. It's like, you know, when you write it, even if you record it, it's like you everything sounds different than you really sound. And uh, I try to be that, try to put myself in the potential fans' mindset and try to hear it like they hear it. I'm not listening to the sweep. I'm not listening to the double bass or the craziest, you know, thing that the band thinks is so cool. Uh, the average listener's is not going to even know that that's difficult to play or that's, that's, technically cool or whatever they're going to listen to the overall does it have a good beat does it have a catchy melody can i relate to the lyrics these things you know and uh and uh, all that stuff has even a you know, place and role in progressive styles of music and extreme styles of music as, music as well you know it's like you know if somebody wants to listen to aggressive stuff it probably should be pretty aggressive you know uh, so you don't want to come across weak and you know there's a lot of different aspects of music like that that so that's where my producer role is is to try to you know, help the band steer them into a direction that for success with the public and you know and and also while expressing wholly their their intent as well you know uh, it's basically maximize everything about what they're trying to do
0: yeah like i, I was curious about that too cuz you know you work with a lot of prog metal bands and that genre is known for being full of lots of technical instrumental elements and you know people like showing off their talents a lot and one of the challenges that a lot of producers face is finding that balance of serving the song versus serving the artist and their need to showcase their skills. So yeah. how do you strike that balance and determine when something's being overplayed versus serving the song?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, honestly, I'm more a fan of the overplayed stuff, you know, like uh, because I know the people are listening to this. They're guitar players, they're drummers and stuff. You know, I think I, honestly, it's a misstep if you're doing progressive styles of music and you're like not shredding. You know, in my opinion, you're like, it's like, what market are you going for? Like, you know who's going to be listening to this? You know, the guy, you know, it's like if Dream Theater was like, hey, let's put our record and we're not going to do any guitar solos. People would be like, what? Let's all play power
0: chords.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think most people would be fine if they just didn't have any singing vocals. They would probably be as big, if not bigger. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people get annoyed by the singing vocals, you know, uh, Dream Theater fans. But the, uh, like I said, I mean, it's one of those things. So, you know, and, you know, the BTBAM guys and some of the other guys I've worked with will tell you the same thing. I You know, I really push the the extreme stuff. I'm like, man, let's go crazy. Let's make this as interesting as possible, you know. Not chaotic, you know, not in terms of like, you know, there are some artists who they do too many layers and just too too many stuff. And you can't really, even as someone who understands, has a decent working knowledge of theory and stuff like that, you can't really process what's going on you know relatively easily i think you're going to be even you're going to be limiting yourself even in the to the progressive market you know uh you know you can have moments like that moments of chaos but there's some artists who try you know their whole thing is chaos all the time and it's like you know there's you're really you know i try to i try to reason with those people like point out like hey you might be you might have too many layers and whatever but like let's take these crazy moments and let's you know take a few of the layers out and let the coolest part shine more you know like the the like the you know like in a commercial if i was producing a commercial band i would I, of course i'd be like you don't need these sweeping arpeggio solo for two <laughs> minutes in the middle of song this is the average person who is going to listen to this does not care you know let's do just a good melody and cut the length and by you know to four bars whatever eight bars <laughs> And, you know, if, if that was their goal, but, you know, I'm almost never working with clients who have that goal of like, hey, we're, we we want to be, you know, a commercial, you know, successful, you know, commercially successful artist in that, in, you know, in a traditional sense, you know, with the.
0: It's really kind of just catering to the genre and the history exactly. of the genre and what that typical sound is. Yeah.
1: I look at the markets, you know, I just, it just depends on what, hey, what style of music is this stuff, you know, in terms of, I think that's, you know, important for me, you know, I want to see the, the artists that I work with be successful. You know, I, you know, first and foremost to me, it's their, you know, artistic expression. I want to make sure that's there. And then beyond that, you know, especially when there's a label involved, you know, I want to make sure that what the product they end up with is something is, is going to have maximum potential to, you know, to appeal to the demographic that their music appeals to and, uh, uh, you know, and not... And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, like, obviously, like I said, for instance, like a Metallica or something, you know, I love Metallica, I grew up with Metallica, like I said, you know, and, you know, in retrospect, I love uh, Blackout, but when it came out, it was, to me, it was like infuriating. Hey, these guys sold out, you know, Bob Rock got with them, he's like, dude, you need a strong structure, you need to simplify, you need to, you know, the prog metal, thrash metal kid in me was like, what are you doing? This is, you know, they got lucky in that Bob Rock was right for the label, he'd steer them into a more marketable. He took the metal sound and distilled it down to something that was digestible for the average player. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, Lars can't play, he just plays simple beats and blah, blah, blah. That's why they're the biggest metal band in the world. Because if he could shred blast beats and double bass, he would probably be doing it. And it would have held the band back because the average individual processed that is just like a barrage of noise, you know. And because he plays these slamming grooves, then there's you know, exponentially more people who can process and enjoy that. And, uh, you know, like I said, I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been my recommendation for them. You know, I'm like, hey, there, you know, you're hot off, you know, Master Puppets and Justice for All. Like, let's take it up a notch, you know. Uh, you're, this is your demographic. So, I mean, but like I said, they were on a the lecture. They're like, how, how do we get bigger? And then they looked at you know, ACDCs selling way more records than we are. And why is that? stuff simple as groovy whatever so they're like let's go more in that direction and for a business decision it was it was correct you know and they were obviously I think that personally they were you know ready to change it up anyway I think they've grown tired to, you know it's, it's kind of laborious to play technical music at, at a certain point especially as you get older it's more difficult you have to think you know more you know uh, you know, you like have to. You're on your toes the whole concert. If you're playing ACDC, I can't imagine they're like worried about nailing their parts. You know, uh, <laughs> they're like they yeah. just go on stage and do it. And you know, like, but if you're a prog band, you're a metal band. You're like, oh man, I hope I can do that double bass thing tonight. You know, you're, you stress yourself out, and it's. Uh,
0: but it's it's interesting too because in the prog genre, there is that tendency to have like a band full of amazing players, and there's a lot of people fighting each other in some respects of like, you know, the drummer is like, well, I got to play this crazy fill or this crazy beat and the guitar solo is going to go on for like five minutes on top of this. And, you know, we got to make this work. So, you know, I, I imagine that your role as a producer has to be a little challenging in terms of like figuring out, okay, how do we find this blend that works and taking like part of what the drummer is doing part of the guitar player and like, you know, what's, what's happening vocally or with the bass or whatever, you know, like how do you put all those elements together and, and make them work and, you know get the band to agree to that right oh
1: it's absolutely a challenge yeah I and mean, it's like you know i've spent a lot of time you know and there's tricks to uh, to make things work and obviously there's uh, you know panning and there's filtering eqs you know basically you got to find space in the mix uh specifically you know i usually if you know there's often times where that happens where you have you know the guys singing you know the average individual is going to listen to the vocals first you know this guitar is secondary for the average person you know a guitar player maybe not so much he might be like ignore the vocals let me listen to the solo or whatever but you know and then there's i get bands all the time who i think the arrangements just poor and the fact that they're like okay we have a you know a solo who obviously the guitar player wants it to be pronounced and clear and the focus but then you got the dude singing the chorus over you know this like a chorus type of vocal that's also commanding attention to a lot of times, you know, I'll try to, you know, if, if it's possible, I'll try to recommend a rearrangement. I'm like, Hey, let's split these parts out. You know uh, let's do the course. You know, it's obviously you've got two things, but sometimes it's just not possible, especially later in the state, you know, in the game uh, you know, with real drums, things like that, you know, it's you can't like you just always change the structure of the song, whatever. But uh, you know, usually I'll try to, you know, like filter one or paint, you know, okay, let's put the vocals in the middle and then we'll put the guitars out the side the way they can both be loud and people can separate them in their minds maximally you know?
0: That's interesting to think about your arrangement that way too. And I think that that's something a lot of people forget about is like, you know, you need to consider where things are going to be in the final product. And if you can record things in a way where you've kept panning in mind, then you can immediately build that separation and clarity just by, you know, Predetermining where things are going to be.
1: Yeah, I think a good composer, a good songwriter, whatever, in the progressive realm, thinks in terms of that. You know, it's, uh, you know, you get some of these bands who, uh, hey, we're going to be a metal band with or- orchestral stuff. Some guys are great with it, and they know that guitars take up a lot of real estate sonically. There's a lot of middle, mid frequencies that are just wiped out by loud, distorted guitars. You know, there's some bands like, hey, we want to hear guitars loud and crunchy. And it's like, well, we're not going to be able to hear most of the strings then. So it's, you know, which do you want to do? <laughs> you know, and that's that's one of the probably the more difficult styles that I've found to work with. Uh, uh, unless the arrangement, you know, if, if you've got a band who understands arrangement and they know, like, OK, this this is this is going to be guitar focal part. And on this part, we're going to let the orchestra be the foreground and we're going to we're going to write the parts. We're going to make a simple Non foreground guitar riff for this part where we're highlighting the orchestral stuff, and then when the guitar stuff's going on, we're going to simplify and have background type of orchestral stuff going on. So the texture stays there for both instruments, but the part itself is not commanding the attention, and that allows you to to mix and it sounds fine. But yeah, you got you know there's there's a lot of you know particularly younger uh, bands or whatever. A lot of times I'll get stuff for mix i'm like i don't (laughs) know how i'm gonna mix this this is i always try to make it work but you know there's uh uh, there's you know there's a a band right now that i'm working with a fantastic band from new york Uh, their stuff is amazing Uh, but you know i and i think they just uh i think they're all music school guys they know theory and stuff like that so what's what's challenging to listen to to them is different than what's challenging to listen to for the average even prog fan. And uh, they have a lot of different layers, and a lot of different uh, things going on, and it sounds fine. They can process it because they know the inner workings of the song. They wrote them, then they recorded them. So, And then even m- myself more so, I had gotten used to them, but I remember I was riding in a car with one of my guitar player friends, and I was kind of like, I just wanted to hear it on my car stereo to check the mix and stuff, and he was like, man what is going he's like what is going on like it's like the vocal he's like the vocalist is amazing there's obviously got there's a catchy good vocal going on but like what is the guitar riff like i don't he's like he was he was like obviously upset by the fact that it it sounded cluttered you know he's like he didn't understand in like in that dawn it dawned on me i was like i need to mention this to the guys they might want to try to strip some stuff out uh, some less important parts at least dial them way back in the mix because you know obviously they want to hear everything clearly but but it's at the experience. Yeah, there's only
0: so much you can actually hear when everything's being played at once
1: yeah i was like you at least need to do radio mixes because like you do a video promotion strategy or something where people are going to hear for the first time that's how they're going to hear they're going to hear it as pure chaos and they're going to be turned off and never listen to it again Uh, you know, maybe on the record, you can have the more challenging one where, you know, if you've got the fan already and they're, you know, then they can hear your original vision, but you could do maybe two versions, you know, there's options of that like that. Um, you know, they, they've done radio versions forever. You know, there's been, you know, songs are like, Oh, this, we want the song to be six minutes. I'm like, okay, we need to trim (laughs) it down to a three minute song for the radio because normal people and the radio guys the only people don't want to hear a six minute long song and the radio guys don't want to play that long of a song. So we have to do that. But then the artist is like, we have, this is my vision of the song. So, okay, we'll put it on the record, you know? And, um, so those compromises are, you know, I think they work. and I
0: think it goes back to what you said earlier about the bands that you're working with and their vision or what their goals are, right? Like if, if it is a band that wants to be on the radio, the goals have to be different. Like, you know, like for that band that wants to be on the radio, they can make those longer extended versions into like their live show, you know, and make make the live show more entertaining. But you need to focus on the recording and get the song, the foundational song there. Right. Whereas for a lot of prog bands, it's it is a little bit more drawn out, longer songs. The audience is used to that. So you you have a little bit more room to play there. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, but, you know, like one thing, you know, I tried, like I said, I always try to bring it back to, you know, as my role of producer, obviously I'm here to provide a service. and give a good mix and get help them get the tones they want and things like that. But like I said, I, I, I try to look at the big picture of like the success of their product, how it reaches people and, and stuff of that nature. So, um, you know, I really try to uh, take their art, you know, like I said, I wish what somebody would do with, uh, with some of my favorite bands. I'm like, man, as I want to see the band get bigger, I wish somebody would be like, you know, do your crazy stuff, make it as crazy as possible, but let's do, a marketable single, you know, like, like people wonder how, you know, Dream Theater is one of the biggest progressive metal bands of all time. And they're like, how did they get so big and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's bands who are technically there's musicians who are probably as good, if not better players than they are. But Dream Theater had pulled me under. They had a single, you know, at one time and they had major label push behind it. Uh, Rush. They're a huge. They were a huge, uh, you know, progressive band. They had some radio singles, you know, uh tool. They have crazy long drawn out songs, but they had some radio singles, you know, it's like to reach the public and to cut through the clutter, you know, traditionally. And I think even more so importantly today, it's like you need something that's instrumental in, in, in cutting through the clutter and, and to, to, to reach the average listener to, or the masses or more so, uh, you know, if you have songs that are like, okay, you know, I try to, you know, if a song is crazy it's like, okay, this is nowhere close to being a, a song that's mark going to be marketable or promote you know to be used as a promotion item like let's make this as crazy (laughs) as possible this will be your you know your outlet for that you know let's do let's uh you know but hey this song if you know if i notice the song has some marketing potential i'm like hey let's at least do a radio or video version of this song strip it down maybe shorten it whatever you know i'll try to you know take that opportunity uh, to to make that suggestion and obviously if a band doesn't have anything like that then i'm like well you know you might want to consider that for your next record like try to consciously like take your art take your sound and condense it you know in a large part you know between the bear and me they've had some crazy stuff you know i think uh, their last album with you know with, uh, you know in conjunction with their label you know they're like hey your stuff is you you're doing these 80 minute long records it's kind of d- difficult to digest that you know for the average person like you know, they suggested, obviously, you know, monetarily, it makes sense as well, of course, to split it into two records. Uh, but they're like, let's split it into two records. You'll know, have two digestible products or whatever. You can market it more easily. You can tour, it. you know, to, to, to do it, to perform. And they've been doing a lot of, like, perform the whole album type things just to play the record. You're playing for 80 straight minutes, you know. Uh, you know, in the last tour cycle, they could they could split it up so they could do the whole album and play some of their hits you know the bigger more popular songs uh the marketing just there's a lot of little little nuanced elements like that that are huge i still wish bt band would do a radio single like that. just take their sound and distill it into a three and a half minute long song with with kind of almost predictable i don't think they'll ever do it just because i think it's like a you know against their uh religion (laughs) but that's exactly it though right
0: like the bands that the band that wants that commercial success they they have to be open to that and they have to go into it thinking like okay well maybe let's write some poppier stuff or like some catchier stuff that's shorter or whatever right
1: at least consider yeah at least consider it you know what i'm saying and that's to me it's my i feel like it's my responsibility to to be a voice of reason here you know i'm of course i'm from the old school and i've seen the success i mean people are like you know You know, metal and rock, guitar-oriented music in general is not, you know, considered pop anymore. Why is the you know these things parts? You know, part of this is you know the you know like I said, I I think metal's still huge. There's obviously you know loads of people still love it. You know, there's few bands who are still playing amphitheaters, Metallica and stuff, and like, but Metallica's still digestible. You know, and a lot of these bands are like. You know, they've gotten to the point where the stuff's just not even digestible for the average individual. You know, they don't have anything for the average individual to digest. And, uh, you know, and it's just one of those things where, uh you know, I think that's kind of led to the state we are in now where there's no guitar or any, or any music on the radio. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, I think mainly it's the record labels aren't supporting it or, you know, they have the note. They've decided that they don't want it to be. Uh, the predominant style of music and stuff. but um.
0: It's kind of one of those funny things where you see it in different genres where, you know, bands... Typically, like a band's first record has a very specific sound that defines them, right? And in the prog genre, it's usually a very technical sounding record. And then, you know, as their career goes on, you find the bands that kind of simplify their sound. And then, in the like pop world or whatever, it's like they start super super simple. And then it's like they get bored of that stuff, so they're like, I'm actually a pretty good player. Like I yeah. want to show show off a little bit more of my talent. And like you kind of see that they start to break off that way, right? It, it's kind of funny to see those two different dynamics and how they they play between genres.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it happens, you know, it happens as an engineer and producer and stuff, but as you get older, you start to realize you're, that's kind of a mistake. Like you, I mean, like I said, I mean, I like, I personally, I mean, I'm a fan of music. I personally don't care anymore. You know, it's gotten to the point, There's so many kids. There's some, there's, there's a, a Chinese eight year old girl who will shred your face off on guitar. It's like, at this point, it's like, what is the point in like trying to sweep arpeggios and do all this crazy difficult stuff? Like, <laughs> does anybody really care anymore? Like, especially, you know, there's, there's probably somebody better than you out there. To me, it's more important what you come up with the creative aspect of it and, uh, you know, and how it feels, you know, how, you know, how it makes somebody feel and things like that. I think that's more valuable certainly to the average listener, but even to the musician, even just to the prog fan of like my, myself, you know, I'd rather, I like progressive stuff, but it has to be good too. You know, it can't just be uh, crazy, you know? And I think, you know, when you're younger, you want to, you think you're impressing people and you want to impress people and get those accolades and stuff. But once you get older, you don't value that as much anymore. And you realize that, Hey man, this is, you know, it's like with BT Bam, you know, Paul, he's like, dude, I just, what I like about guitar, I realize are just the riffs. I just want to riff. I just want to play some riffs, you know? And, uh, you know, I think he's looking at, you know, going on tour with the Tosin and the animals leaders and all these places. Like, man, I I don't feel like practicing to be able to play all this stuff. You know, it's like, I. You probably could, but it's going to take, you know, hours and hours and hours of your life to be able to do that. And nobody ultimately cares. You know, it's like, you know, you know, some a few people, but the masses would still rather just hear a good song that, or feel a good song that resonates with them. You know, um, whether it be the groove and melody or the combination.
0: So in your opinion, then, like what makes a great song?
1: That's a really hard one. You know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously, I still think, you know, the most powerful, the most successful songs, it, it hinges on a good, catchy melody. Totally difficult. There's 12 notes, you know, and there's, you know, X amount of patterns of rhythms, and we probably used up all the best ones. Uh, so that's really difficult. Uh, like I said, a good groove, good, you know, a good vibe, uh, you know, overall, you know, the sonic aesthetic of it, a good vibe. Obviously, i never personally never cared about i don't care what people are talking about you know (laughs) like you know there's a few songs i'm like i kind of relate to that but i personally don't but i know the average individual loads of people will love a song because that they relate to the song writer's content the lyrical content they value the lyrical content over the melody over the song itself to me that's crazy (laughs) because i don't listen to music that way i listen for the music not But I think that's also because
0: you are a musician. So your natural tendency is to think about the technical musicianship versus the average listener who doesn't know how to play anything. They're like, oh, I I can relate to those lyrics, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just how I was, you know, because I remember as a kid, you know, you don't know what people were talking about. You know, it's like,
0: I want to fight for
1: my (laughs) right to party when I was a kid. You know, it's like, you know, I didn't resonate with those lyrics, but the song was cool. You know, it's like catchy Beastie Boys thing, you know, uh, you know, you know, from my childhood, you know, it's like, I think I just mainly latched onto the groove and to the melody you know, more than anything. Um, But like I said, as a producer, I've, you know, grown and realized that lyrics are super important. You know, it's like lyrical content and stuff like that could really help, you know, it can make or break what you're talking about. If you get overly political or religious or not, you know, like it can completely open or close doors, uh, you know, in terms of success. So, I mean, what makes a good song to me is the, you know, good grooves, good melodies, and, uh, you know, some amazing performances are important to me. Average person probably don't really care about the amazing performance aspect, you know, in terms of actually, you know, how the music's executed uh, as much as I would. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a little bit of everything. I mean, there's a little bit of magic, honestly, I believe, you know, you, you like, you're like, there's lots of songs that are singles. You're like, How did that become a single at that time? That is just crazy to me, like. That you know, I think back of Megadeth, you know, in the Rust in Peace record, like they were playing it in like amphitheaters, and there were like twenty thousand people coming to see them to play that. Like that's, I mean, that's my jam. You know, that's awesome to me. But like, like, how did normal people like let? They had four guitar solos in one song, like, and Dave's voice is irritating to most. You know. Uh, I, I like it but you know it's like it's you know but but at some at certain points like you know hanger 18 was a huge song It's just bizarre you know when you think about things like that and uh, you know so it's a really hard thing to pin down but like, i would say like i said catchy is definitely you know it has to be catchy you know i think that's all the songs that are have lasted forever you know something about it you're singing along to it you're whatever, you know, it's like, it's got something about it that you want to hear it again, you know? And I think that, you know, most people call it a hook or whatever. And that applies even, uh, you know, whether it's classical music, like the most classical, the classical music that we, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of classical music, but, you know, you have, you know, your Bach and Mozart and a few, you know, your big names who've written a few pieces that just really stick with you You here. And it's like, that is amazing. And that is memorable. You know, some of the most crazy, you know, prodigious music is almost not memorable at all, you know, from the classical era. You know, you can't listen to it and be like, and hear it again, you know, two days later and be like, you, I don't know if I've heard (laughs) this before. I think I have, you know, but it's amazing from a musical standpoint, but that still doesn't mean it's good, you know.
0: Yeah, I guess it just keeps it keeps it fresh and interesting when you can find something new about a song every time you listen to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that, too. You know, I think in in the program, that's a a good, you know, obviously for pop, you don't want you don't want it to be deep. You want to be on the surface. Here it is. It's super every element, super catchy. And you listen to it and you've got it right out of the bay. I think the average listener, they don't want to work to listen to music. I personally like music that it's got some catchy stuff, but you have to listen to it over and over to get it all. And you can get something new out of it. You know, I think the extra layers, the extra production value, things like that really help with the, uh, uh, progressive styles of music. Uh, you know, I think that's a really positive thing. You know, like I said, if you're doing progressive music, you, you don't take the guitar solo <laughs> out, you know, you add more, you know, you add, you know, uh, and but you know, you do make the guitar, you don't just shred the guitar solo nonstop. You need to add some cool melody and hook things in there, too. You know, it's a balance, you know. I think so. I think, I guess if there's one thing I would say as far as what makes a song good is a good balance of a lot of elements, you know.
0: Totally agree with that. One area of your productions that I really admire the quality of is your guitar tones, and to me, like they always sound really tight, they're clean, they're very defined. Um, do you have any tips for tracking guitar and how to capture great tones and get all of that clarity and definition out of them?
1: Oh, uh, well, I feel like I still am personally working on guitar tones. Uh, but the, uh, you know, I, I'm mainly, like I said, I, this, this is one of those we were talking earlier, like how when I first started, I did it a certain way, which was a standard way. I just put the 57 right in the middle of the speaker on a guitar cab and I recorded the guitar, one mic. Then I got crazy and started buying all these mics, doing all this different miking, And the guitar tones really weren't better. You know, I was like reading all this stuff like, oh, I need to do this XY pattern or I need to do this room mic technique. Or, I need to do this, you know, thinking like some of my favorite tones. And then I found out later that the fa- my favorite tones were actually recorded the way I recorded it when I first started, the standard way. And I'm like, really? He used a, a SM57 on a... You know, and that's the best, still the best. You know, and I went back to remix my stuff. I'm like, the guitar tones are better on this stuff than what I've been get, what I got like, you know, a decade later. Like it, like it was maddening almost. And, uh, but yeah, so I mean, I would recommend just an SM57 on the cab if you're using a real <laughs> amp. Uh, you know, I think it's essential. The speaker, you know, if you want the just quintessential, like most people think it sounds good type tone, just a, a cab with a vintage thirty um, guitar speaker. Take an SM57, put it right up on the cone. Um, you can't go wrong. It's not, you're going to mess up or whatever. It's all EQ after that, you know, on the backside. Um, you know, your amp, I think the head is less important than the pickup of the guitars. You know, obviously, like, I think it's important for guitar tones to use the appropriate pickup for the sound you want. Uh, you know, obviously, in, like, an industry standard has always been an EMG, like, 81 and a lot of people, they always try to get away from it. But every time I hear a tone, I'm like, that's a great tone. And I found that it's like an EMG. I'm like, man, what? You know, now they have the Fishman Fluence, which is basically they have their active setting, which is basically a clone of like an EMG type active. So you get the really, you know, they don't, people are like, oh, I don't like EMGs. I'm like, dude, you have the Fluence pickup and it's, that's cloned an <laughs> EMG, <so> whatever. <laughs> there's a huge, like people hate on, like, Oh, it's compressed and blah, blah. I'm close to compressed. Like that's part of what's makes it razory sharp and clear. That's what you like about it. You know, anyway, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, as far as that, I mean, uh, you know, but, uh, I think uh, one thing that really helped helped me is, is, uh, not relying on the amp for the sharpness of the sound. Uh, you know, a lot of the old tube amps are kind of loose, especially the classic ones, uh, you know, like, a you know, Marshall JSM 800 or a, a Mesa dual rectifier. They were, you know, uh, PV 5150. Now it's the 60, 6505. But all these were common amps back when I first started and I always got really mushy tones or more mushy tones than I wanted to get. I didn't realize the professionals were almost always putting some sort of overdrive in front of the amp. You know, there's another common industry standard thing is take a tube screamer of a sort, like an Ibanez tube screamer, you know, it was famous obviously being the, the old, uh, 808. Tube screamer and put it in front of the amp, and it gives it an actual little bit of upper mid-range bite uh, that gives you some clarity in the mix. Uh, you know, I usually most people, you know, they'll turn the gain all the way down, so you're actually not really overdriving the sound much at all. It's just the signal that hits the front of the amp is a brighter, it's more sharp signal, so that totally clears up the tone. You know, like if you just plug straight into the amp, a lot of times it sounds muddy. A lot of your um, you know your plugins and and things and you know, like Kemper uh, you know your Kemper patches and things a lot of these are, are created like with the overdrive sharpness already on you know they make the profile with the the tube screamer or overdrive of a sort uh, in the signal chain or whatever so it sounds sharp uh, sharper than the amp does naturally now the, obviously there's some modern amps and there's some other amps that don't that don't need this sharpening you know they're sharper tones. Uh, by themselves or whatever, but, uh, uh, you know, they're more on the rare side, I, I would say uh, somewhat, but m- most of the time I'm using some sort of overdrive. Uh, Misha sent us, uh, Misha from periphery sent us, uh, his, uh, horizons devices, uh, his version of a tube screamer, uh, I think it's called the precision drive. And that thing's amazing. I've been using it almost exclusively, uh, you know, and it does exactly what it says. It gives it, he has a, you know, has a unique feature, uh, that you can control the attack, of the, uh, of the part. So if you want a kind of a sharp rhythmic sound, you just twist of a knob and it sounds sharper. If you want a fat, you can twist the knob and it sounds fat and you can kind of, uh, you know, I literally, when I'm doing tracking guitars myself, I literally, it, 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 uh, each tone gets slightly different uh, uh, gain structure, as you would say, or tightness, sharpness uh, relative to what's being played in the need uh need for it in the mix you know i usually try to sit you know set the gain hey does can is there room for more gain on this part let me turn the gain up hey does it need to be it's got a lot of notes in it can we turn it you know it's not something you can do live you can't sit there and ride your gain and sharpen and for each riff you know there's no tech that's going to be able to do that but it's an idealization for a record because i'm i'm thinking in terms of producer i know especially with this progressive music they're going to be layers you know we're not just bass guitar drums like acdc or whatever you can set your tone and forget it this is going to have keyboards it's going to have vocals it's you know stacked so i have a constant consciously try to realize like i need the most transparent tone for each riff and each part you know uh and if I, you know
0: yeah it can't be high gain all the time no
1: yeah i mean it's like you know you really you know you want to maximize that the clarity for each part you know and uh you know, and a lot of times and at first, especially for me, you know, a lot of times well, I don't know the music before the client comes in at all. Sometimes people send a, a demo, but I don't have time to sit and study every aspect of every demo people send. A lot of times they change stuff anyway. So it's kind of a waste of time, but it's all an educated guess at first. Luckily, like I said, with modern days, most people will retract when they're tracking real amps or amp emulators, even they'll track a DI signal as well from the guitar and the bass. I always recommend that if you use a you know, if you're using a, a Kemper and Axe FX amp emulation or, you know, replication, or if you're using a real amp, always use a DI and split the signal and record the direct signal from the guitar. Because if you make the wrong educated guess, like you say, Hey, this tone is going to sound great. Once you get everything in there, then you might realize, man, it's still too much gain or not enough gain. Even it sounds weak. Now I, you know, I made a bad decision. So luckily if you track a DI signal. From the guitar, you can always change the amp, you know, the tone or even the amp, sometimes different amps, you know, like a Mesa's kind of fuzzy and thick, you know, sometimes that tone is great for certain riffs, but then not so great uh, for others, like uh, the Van Cryptoderone that I'm working with right now. We, we, we ended up, you know, we reamped, we tracked with a 5150, my Voodoo modded 5150. Everything sounded great, but then some riffs sounded thin. So we reamped everything with a, a Voodoo modded <laughs> rectifier uh you know old school rack mount rectifier uh both of these amps used to belong to Dusty from BT Band by the way but the so we uh reamped with everything and then some of those tones were great but then the other other riffs the it sounded better on the 5150 so we ended up using totally uh different amps for different riffs you know there were EQ matched so you, you know you don't perceive them as being different amps you know but the gain structure uh you know like I said the Mesa had that thick fuzzy sound which with those those sonic characteristics suited these certain riffs better uh than in the 5150 had this uh, edgy clarity you know the more aggressive uh, attacky sound but it wasn't as thick, you know uh or saturated so you know you just kind of utilize the natural qualities of the amp per part you know and you can kind of do. You can do this on, you know, with different use, you know, pedals or even different guitars. You know, some guitar pickups. Like I said, EMG is going to be more sharp and and punchy than say, you know, like a, a classic uh, Gibson style, you know, uh, humbucker or something like that. It's going to be a little more thick and uh, round on the on the you know the low end and uh, not quite as sharp in the mix. So, but sometimes you know you can use a different guitar and get a similar type of thing. These are super nuanced uh things but i think that's part of what you know gets clarity in the mix is this attention to detail on the, the little the smaller finer points you know
0: it's interesting to hear you talk about using the pedals um that, that's a technique that i've definitely heard a lot of people using it sounds like you're you're kind of using the pickups and the like tube screamer for example as like a transient shaper Absolutely. going into the amp so you had mentioned not cranking the gain on the Tube Screamer. And, and you know, a lot of people think, well, it's an overdrive, so I should be, you know, slamming it with some more gain. But um, in that case there, it's really the tone's coming or the, the shape is coming from the tone control on, on those pedals, Yeah, right? it's just
1: something to do with that chip. You know, I guess the, the 4558 chip and the most famous ones. Uh, the, you know, it's, some, it's just something to do with the circuitry. You, if you turn it, if you, you can have the volume all the way down, set the volume at unity, and have the tone at 12 o'clock, if you just turn it on, there's a, there's a upper mid range boost. There's a sharpening the sharpening effect to the tone uh, just by default. And that, you know, obviously with the, you know, uh, with Misha's pedal, it, um it doesn't, uh it doesn't have as much of an up range, you know, like flat, but it does it a little bit, uh, but it's not quite as extreme as the tube screamer. So that one, you can actually boost on the tone and things like that. And it has that, you know, that transient shaping uh, process or whatever, a lot of your like ax effects, you can go in and actually change, you know, your transient stuff. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of it has to do with that. You know, it's a, uh, you know, uh, it's more of a uh, more transient You know, design work as opposed to a, uh, you know it's actually as opposed to you know really working with distortions and things of that nature that's uh you know
0: and do, and do you find that that technique is more is better suited for like arpeggiated music or does it still apply in your opinion to like you know held out chords and you know more strumming based stuff as yeah,
1: well yeah i mean it, like i said it's just all um you know uh, it's it's riff by riff i mean it's not even like certain types of uh Know, certain types of music or anything like that, you know, obviously like, you know, if most of your riffs are aggressive and thrashy and stuff. You know, EMG is going to be perfect for that. A tube screamer is going to be perfect for that. And it's probably going to work for most of your riffs. But as soon as they go into a different type of riff with like some full strum chords, all of a sudden that EMG is maybe smearing some notes together. Uh, might be better to unplug that guitar, get a guitar that has some more note separation. Maybe even use a single coil, uh, roll the gain back, you know, uh, maybe not use the tube screamer um, if it's the single coil with tube screamer is extra bright, you know, uh, you know, little things like that. It's, you know, all that, you know, experimentation over the years, you know, I kind of know what's going to work in my mixes, you know, just by I'm like, OK, for this riff, we might need to, you know, hey, can you change your pickup position? Let's split the coil for this. Uh, you know, the contortionists, I work with those guys and they're really big on, uh, you know, using split coil stuff. A lot of their stuff, a lot of people ask me like, Hey, we want to sound like that. And it's like, they don't realize they're not using the humbucker hardly like whole songs. You know, it's like, dude, that's, you know, it's a split coil. They tap the coil on their guitars and it gives it, you know, helps all, they do a lot of arpeggiate, a lot of corded type stuff that you want every note to come through and, uh. You know, that's I think the, the use of the single coil is essential for that. If we used the, the the humbucker for all the parts, you wouldn't hear the notes would just blend smear together. Which, like I said, for the thrashy metal stuff, sometimes that's kind of what you want. You know, you want that barrage of sound, you know, punch punchy type of sound or whatever. So it's just exploiting the natural qualities of different pickups. Like I said, I honestly believe uh, you know the amp can affect the sounds. You know, the the ref the you know the the instance that we use for Cryptidira, you know, the amp, amp can be a big thing. But first and foremost, I usually go for the pickups use, the guitar use, the pickup use, and uh, you know, the uh the overdrive use. Like I use a couple of the uh use Keeley modified tube screamer. Um it had the uh what's called the baked mod, you know. Uh he he actually came out with a multi pedal that has uh that his his Keeley tube screamer this Keeley modified tube screamer, and with a couple of, of the Keeley uh, uh, overdrives, and you can get a myriad of just different uh, types of uh, saturations and dry overdrive, and how you're pushing the front of the amp. And uh, you know these types situations also work with your emulators, with your Kemper and Axe effects, and your plugins as well. Uh, you know how you hit the front end of the plugin, you can get a myriad of different tones, even with one plugin. You know, like I said, to me, I find that the actual uh, especially with EQ matching, the actual amp used is way less important uh, than the pickups in the the overdrive and how you hit the front end of the amp and things like that. You know, uh, now I think it's speaker. The speaker is more important than the amp. If you use, uh, you know, some speakers, like I said, I mean, just the way they break up or the way they uh, they're voiced and things like that. You know, they're going to create n- not as much work. <laughs> they're going to create work or you know you know, make things more easily. You know, I think that like I said for me the I use a warehouse, warehouse uh, guitar speakers has a, uh, their version of a vintage 30, like a, like an old, the old British, the old British vintage 30s to me sound better, better, less brittle and harsh than the new Chinese made ones. I don't know if they're doing something different or the materials or workmanship or what. But they sound better. They sound more pleasing to the ear. Things like that, and uh, you know, they're used, especially when they're older. They they start mellowing out on the top end, getting more smooth. So what Warehouse Guitar Speakers has done is they've cloned an, an old Brit worn-in speaker, and you could buy one new, and it's uh, it's really it's really inexpensive. And I found that that made a huge difference in my tones and stuff. You know, just by switching out the speaker, you know, it's a lot more clarity. Uh, get that the voicing of a classic old vintage 30 without muddiness and just it's it was insane the difference you know more of a difference than swapping out an amp you know it's crazy
0: so going back to what you said earlier about kind of constantly changing the tone of the guitar sound as you're going through the different riffs do you track uh do you track in a way like are you just recording riff by riff? Is that your approach there or? normally I know some people have different, different opinions of like, sometimes people just play through the whole song for Prague. It's obviously a lot harder to do that, but <laughs> yeah, if somebody comes in like, Hey, we're a
1: rock and roll band, you know, I've done a few rock and roll bands uh, and uh, you know, a few of the straight up thrash bands, stuff like that, where it's just like obviously desired, the consistent, just tone works for almost all the riffs. And it, it uh, you know, it, the c- consistency is a, uh, a desired L- aspect of it, you know? Uh, For those styles of bands, yeah, just like, hey, let's just rock. A lot of times I'll I'll have the artists, you know, if because I want to try to get a performance vibe personally. If they're down for performance sounding record, if they don't want like, if they want, if they come in and like, hey, we want as pristine, pristine, precise, clean as possible, then okay, we're tracking it riff by riff. And whoever in the band plays it better, that's who's going to play the part and double it because we're going to get the best intonation. We're going to get the best tone matching all this stuff, you know, the, if you want the absolute best. But if somebody's like, hey, we want a more kind of organic, how we sound live type sound, then I'm like, okay, let's just play, you know. And then we'll come back. Like I said, if there's any riffs that are like, okay, this tone's not working for this riff, you know, it's kind of muddy, works fine for everything else, then we'll grab a guitar, we'll punch in that spot, you know. Uh, that's normally how I would do it, you know. It's like, let's see how it sounds with your sound. Let's capture your sound, put it, record it, and then listen back. And then if there's anything uh, that needs to be touched up. Um, you know, there's some tricks I do in the computer as well to make things work that without them actually retracting anything, like, like I mentioned earlier, filtering, uh, like I said, behind a guitar solo, for instance, I'll bring the volume down and I'll thin out the guitars a little bit. I'll take a little bit of highs away from the rhythm guitars, take away the little bit of lows. And that just gives us some more, uh, some more space for the guitar lead. You know, of course, a lot of times for guitar leads, uh, you know, I'll use, you know, a different, uh, Overdrive, a different guitar, a different amp, you know, something, uh, you know, if you, if you've got for clarity, it's important. I mean, you can't layer the same exact tone over and over and over and expect there to be, you know, note separation or part separation things, you know, it's a, and at some a certain point, it's going to, they're going to be a brick wall of common frequencies and saturations and things like that. So just by changing the overdrive or changing the pickup, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, sometimes even going as far as changing the amp or, uh, you know, speaker, uh, you can get, you can get clarity and separation and not have to do anything. You know, it just gives you, uh, gives you you know a bigger, wider sound, gives you more depth in terms of the, the, the part separation, stuff of that nature.
0: That's very cool. How about editing? Like, do you rely heavily on editing to make sure everything is tight after the fact, or are you kind of tracking in a way that you can eliminate a lot of that editing upfront?
1: I do a lot of editing. <laughs> um, well, the I found that, like I said, the, uh, it depends, like I said there again, if it depends on what the client wants, if the client want, comes in, they're like, Hey, we want this to be as pristine, uh, perfect as possible, you know, uh, you know, if they come in, they're like, Hey, we want it to sound like, I don't know, periphery, Some, somebody who's like really, you're pretty, you know, gridded out. Things are even subdivisions, you know, very mechanical, uh, you know, technical sense. So if somebody wants that type of thing. Like, okay, let's, let's track this, like, part by part even you know a couple bars at a time make sure everything's clean if i do it that way by default it's easier for people to play more imperfectly in time or whatever um so i don't have to do as much editing usually i'll still dub you know, double check it and touch it up and things like that but if you're tracking small chunks then the part you know i could just hey try it again try it again and you know uh you know we'll get a perfectly in time type of situation uh, but a lot of bands, I personally prefer a band to sound, the record to sound like the band, you know, always say it on the band on their very best day. You know, this is what if you have ideal sound guy, the crew and all this stuff, and everybody nails their parts with our ideal equipment all this stuff this is what the record's going to sound like i think that's the best idea you know ultimately i mean nowadays more than ever like the product is the live show that's the only place where you can make money you know a decent amount of money there's there's not a lot of records to be sold there's still some money to be had but as your record is basically an audio business card it's like hey here's what we sound like come see us experience this live you know Um, you know, I think for success, for people to make a career out of this, that's kind of needs to be their approach. You know, you're not going to make a living just making records and putting out records, you know, like makes a little extra money unless you're super lucky and really blow up. And usually that requires a major label of some sort, their resources, but, um, but yeah, like I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Uh, but what was your question again?
0: Just in terms of how, how much you rely on editing and, you know, if, if you're tracking to to avoid editing later. That kind of yeah, thing.
1: so it would basically like the um, what I like to do, since I think the, the record should be like kind of a live translation, I try to capture it kind of live-esque. And normally, every once in a while I'll record somebody where everybody's playing at the same time. I don't really have a large facility. I'm in my basement studio, so I don't have – I have a vocal booth. The amps. I have some isolation cabs out in the other room, and I have a you know a live room where everybody's you know I just have a room where everybody's standing in the same room, so I can track a basic you know four or five piece band or whatever. I can track everybody at one time, and I have done it a few times, and it's and it's great. You know, it's a uh, if you got good players, it's really cool because they can vibe off each other and totally sounds like a live recording, but with studio separation, you know. Um, so to me, that's the highest integrity type recording having said that usually it's very difficult. You have to have total master players and and there's a, you know, there's a level of progressiveness that you can't go beyond, uh, you know, and, and record that way and expect it to sound clean and great. You know, I think Bam Matt maxed out the pinnacle of that with their live recordings, you know, they're, you know, and they do this, they've only done the live recordings after touring or in a tour where they've been playing the stuff night after night and they're really in shape to play the stuff. Uh, but like I said, you can kind of get that vibe if you just, like I said, you let the drummer play from top to to bottom, you know, don't have him punch in part by part, you know, Uh, because what happens is stuff really starts to, you know, you you lose the human, the natural human feel, those, those slight ramp ups and tempo and dynamic and stuff tend to not be there properly or like, or normally Uh, same thing with a guitar player or bass player. You know, sometimes the breakdown hits and they'll hit it harder if we're tracking part by part, they're not in context. They might play that part too light or something. So I like to let people just play. I would rather have them just play and feel it and put the feeling into what they're playing, into the guitar, to the drums, into the bass. Same thing with vocals. Just go through it, play it, try to put in a good performance. Think about what you're saying in the lyrics. Put that emotion in. Think about, you know, the song. Imagine yourself playing in front of a thousand people, 5,000 people, 10,000 people, whatever it takes to put that energy like you want them to feel it you know you want you're feeling it their truck probably going to feel it too i capture that then if things are awry like you know a lot of times with drums i almost always do some level of quantizing to put it to get it kind of in the industry spec you know people are accustomed now to hearing stuff on time you know um but like I said, i'll said, i do it try to do it art artfully where it's like okay this is purposely i'll let the drummer play oftentimes i'll have people play You know, the drummer will lay down his track with everybody playing, no click, just let him do his thing, and then I'll build the click somewhat to what he's doing. You know, I'll kind of smooth some things out, but I'll try I'll try to see, okay, okay, he's pushing this part, and it sounds good. It's on purpose. Uh, You know, instead of saying, you know, some bands come in like, yeah, this song is at, you know, 150 BPM, and it's like, sometimes that works out great, but a lot of times it's like, you know, I've had bands, they'll like, man... They'll come in with their tempos. They think they'll have their tempos worked out. And they're like, man, that just feels so draggy. And it's, you know, and to me, it's like, dude, that sounds draggy. I'm like, just just play it, see what it is. I'm like, dude, that song's totally supposed to be 175. (laughs) And I was like, is this the tempo you guys normally play it? Or does this feel like right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, basically, they just did determine the tempo wrong, you know. Or it just, you know, like I said, just being when everybody's jamming it, it feels different from what they program the drums to their demos you know it just it's there's a feel and i think it's more important that feeling be captured and, and translated so you know I'll, I'll i'll let them come in just track their stuff and then then i'll do the editing to get it to where it is just like with the vocalist i'm like i want him to feel what he's saying to put in the emotion to make, concentrate on the stuff that i can't do anything about which is the emotion, the, the diction, things like that. I can tune a note if it's a little sharp. I'm not worried about it. You know, we can throw it in graphic mode of auto tune and and bring it down, and and it'll 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 sound great. You know, it's like, uh, you know, you get, you know, I've noticed, you know, early on, like I said, I would try, I would push people to do perfect. You know, and you know th- that causes a couple things. It's like, you know, they start hyper focusing on things like pitch and rhythm they're not focusing on what they're talking about. They're not focusing on the emotion or the vibe or the groove. You know, they're not focusing on any of that. They start hyper-focusing on what you're trying to push them to perfect. And it becomes a sterile, lifeless type sounding part, you know, and it's a, uh, and I can't do anything about that. There's no, like, life plug-in where you can, like, you know, <laughs> you know there's, you can't Wouldn't change. that be
0: so good? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: somebody, somebody needs to work on that. Somebody who can do some programming stuff would be cool. To, a life injector. But, yeah, like, with editing, like I said, you know, you can abuse editing. You can really, you know, edit the life out of it. Even if they put the life into it, you can completely edit it out, you know, if you go too far with it. But, like I said, with the guitars, like, instead of, like, you're going through, you know – bar at a time and tracking it or bar to time and editing every single note like you can leave some of that natural like okay this riff you know i like to go through them. like this riff is really progressive technique techie there's three different parts going on the bass player is playing a part two guitar players playing two it kind of needs to be if it's this if the timing is too flammy between all the players it, it takes away from the riff you know i kind of make a decision as to this can kind of stand to be tighter
0: that makes sense. Yeah. You're you're listening to all of the elements at the same time and to see if it needs to be tighter. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, there's so many people that just will quantize every single note. And to your point that that can totally destroy all of that feel. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel with guitars, um, like in terms of the editing that you're doing, are you doing a lot of like elastic audio or more slip editing kind of moves? Like what's your approach with that? More
1: slip editing. Yeah. Elastic audio. I found, I feel like it distorts the audio, especially if you have to make some more like even up to a 16th note type move, you know, if somebody's like quite ahead or quite behind, the elastic audio can actually degrade the audio quality. Um, and I think most of the dolls have something like elastic audio, so I try to avoid elastic audio at all po- costs. You know, I stretch as a last minute, you know, I would rather copy and paste and crossfade where possible, uh, to keep the sound the full 24 bit that I record. Um, You know, you start stretching stuff, you stretch stuff double, then you're down to 12 bit in essence, you know, Uh, I don't know exactly how that all works, but I'm pretty sure that's kind of how it works. So uh, I'd rather not stretch it if at all possible. So the, you know, normally I'll go to copy and paste before I would do extreme stretching or whatever. Uh, like with drums with with pro tools obviously they have a you know feature called beat detective it does a fill and crossfade as opposed to as opposed to a elastic audio like stretching or compressing the audio it 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 does a copy and paste type algorithm where it picks a portion of the of the the resonance of the note and copies and pastes it so it's 100 percent sound quality um uh, and that's, I think that's a Pro Tools exclusive thing to my knowledge. I don't think everybody else like does the whole stretch and compress thing, which kind of...
0: I think some of the other programs have something similar, but it's not exactly the same thing. Yeah. Speaking of drums, like I know that you work with a lot of material that occasionally has like double kicks or blast beats and that kind of stuff how do you go about approaching the low end in your mixes when you have like a consistent element like that throughout a song because often those things they're just adding this like rumble constantly right so how do you how do you deal with the low end on those kind of things oh
1: it's just hours and hours of manual (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) i said live is like like i said it's idealization it goes beyond you know what you can achieve live but yeah if you get in a lot of fast double bass then you're going to have a you know, barrage of like, you know, the low sub frequencies that, uh, you know, the, that can kind of distract in the mix. So uh, to me, there's like, it's over a certain, you know, speed, uh, you know, of double bass. I think honestly, if like it gets over, if it gets over like, uh, like 90 milliseconds, like up to 90 milliseconds, it's fine. It's separate enough to stay untouched in my opinion. Uh, but once it starts getting faster, the faster, faster it gets, the more you need to reduce the low end. Uh, and, you know, just the dynamics in general, a lot of, a lot of drummers trigger and a lot of metal, you know, is kind of expected to have like kind of triggered kick drums. Cause another thing that happens with real acoustic drummers, you play in an acoustic kit, the faster you go, the lighter the hits get, then all of a sudden it doesn't sound aggressive. It doesn't, it, the notes aren't uh, coming through articulately in the mix. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a traditional thing at this point, or whatever, for most, uh, uh, for, for most, um, you know, extreme metal or whatever, to have a pretty consistent, aggressive kick the whole time. So it's like a machine the, gun sound. Exactly, yeah. So, but, you know, uh, to me, it's like, I don't have a, a lot of people like, oh, tr- triggering cheating and like, oh, you like, you play with triggers and see it's, you know, you have to be more articulate uh, to trigger an acoustic kit. <laughs> um, if you're if you're playing sloppy, it's going to miss trigger and really sound bad. So to me, it's, it's just a different type of performance element. So I don't find that like sample blending or, you know, sample replacement is like 100% cheating. Yes, it is stripping out some of the dynamic elements of the stuff. But in the kick drums instance, a lot of times it's a negative dynamic I- issue, you know, where things get so fast and you can't hear the drummer's, you know, fast articulate stuff. And, it, you know, reduces the, the aggressiveness of the part and things like that. So, um, but yeah, we, if you do you use triggers, you have, to ba- you have to back down the faster it goes. Uh, the more you have to back down on the sample, it would just become distracting, annoying in the mix, you know. Uh, you know, there has to be some naturalization of that uh, 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 happening in order to, you know, for, you know, the, I think it's just key. There's some art, there's some mixes I've heard, even some top mixers like, you know, uh even on the new Kill Switch Engage, Like Andy Sneap's one of my favorite producers. I don't know if, I know he mixed the record. I don't know if it's his fault or not, but, you know, any double bass kicks in, it's like all the low end was gone. I'm like, that is weird. Like, that doesn't even sound natural. Like, I don't know whose decision that was, if it was Andy that did that. I mean, I, he, I, don't, I haven't heard him do that on other records, but I noticed that, like, when the double bass comes in, there's literally no low end hardly at all in the kick drum. I'm like, uh. But you can, there's different approaches. Like I said, uh, if you have a boomy type kick sound or a boomy kick sample, like you can kind of use a transient designer of a sort or a gate of some sort to kind of tighten up uh, the low end so that the low end is still there the same, but it's just a tighter, shorter low end uh, that keeps that whole buildup from happening. Um, so that's a little trick you can use. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for me, it's just, I probably spend the most work on, especially with real drums, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it, you know, dynamically to get things to work right, and and especially with real drums, you got a lot of bleed that gets into the snare and the the tom tracks and things, and, uh, just to get all that stuff uh, clean to where you're not having any negative uh, cymbal bleed issues uh, coming into the mix. Uh, there's a lot of manual work that goes into that as well, you know. It's uh, and it's the more dynamic the stuff is, the more difficult and more time-consuming. It's just part by part, you know. Just like I said with the kick drums, you just turn them down. You know, even if a guy does a little triplet, I'll turn those down just to, you know, just to, you know, speed the OCD thing. I know there's a buildup of low end. I want to keep
0: it smooth. <laughs> no, that makes sense, So, And it kind of ties into what you had mentioned a little while ago about how you'll use automation with your guitar tracks as well to let another instrument kind of stick out in the forefront. So, yeah, it makes sense that you would, why not use it on the kick drums as well and carve out that space so that everything else still keeps its low end. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it's just finding that that low end balance of like when you've cut too far.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just it is tough. I mean, you know, like I, a lot of these things, I wait. I'll get everything in the mix or the ballpark, and I'll just like is anything a problem, and I'll deal with it. You know, a lot of because I think some people go too far and too deep into the detail stuff. You know, two things that are unnecessary. Uh, you know, like uh, in terms of quantizing, in terms of tuning, in terms of a lot of stuff or whatever, they'll go too far with stuff. You know, they're just automatically like, hey, I do this, this, and this always. And, you know, I used to do that and do all this stuff. And then now that I, when I get files, like I try to get build them, work up a mix. And even when I record bands, I kind of mix as I go, try to get things in a ballpark, see what tones are working like that way. If like this tone's probably not going to work, let's go ahead and hit this now. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it really helps see you know, to hear everything, how it's going to be, uh, you know, really helps you make dis- informed decisions on, you know, EQ moves, level moves, tone moves, uh, you know, help you make decisions as to what's best for the project, you know?
0: For sure. You you have to learn from that trial and error.
1: Yeah. I'm a fan of simplicity. To me, the simpler, the better. Like I said, I'll get people, people record stuff and I'll get the files. I'm like, dude, there's six kick drum tracks. Like why? Like, you know, it's like I'll put the two normal ones in if it sounds good, i leave it alone. There's like, you know, it's like, you know, I'll maybe bring the others up just to see if it does something. But if it's like, you know, it, you know, some people just go too crazy. They'll, it's all these layers of guitars, all these, you know, like, yeah, we have recorded the vocals with four mics. I'm like, just pick cool I'm gonna one mute that three of them. yeah exactly <laughs> pick the one that sounds the best and i think they, a lot of people want to give me options but a lot of times it's like they're you're you're just you're making things take longer than they need to take either it sounds good or it doesn't if you just make that executive decision if it doesn't sound good try something else you know if it sounds good then roll you know it's like it's just uh it's not you know this i think some people think you have to have the ultimate sound for everything and it's like that's There's no, there's never an ultimate sound, you know what I'm saying? Like, even if you think you're like, all right, I've worked tirelessly to get this ultimate guitar sound. Mark my words, you go back and listen to that in five years, you're like, that sounds terrible. Like, guitar tones that I used to think were amazing, I've gone back and listened to, like, I used to love Pantera's guitar tone. I listen to it now, I'm like, it worked, it totally works for what they did, but I'm like, this is a harsh, (laughs) like, shrill, it hurts my ears, you know, like, But when I was a kid, that was like, that's what we wanted. My band's like, we wanted that eh, 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 sound. And now it's a completely undesirable sound for most people. Most people want a big guitar sound.
0: It was just so different for its time. So it stood out. Yeah. Like, so we could
1: have, you know, it was, it was amazing for its time, but that's my point is that a lot of people think they want this ultimate sound and they'll spend so much, you know, even, you know, bands I work with, they want this certain sound, you know, they're like, they won't just let it sound the way it sounds. They're like, dude, the way it sounds, it sounds great sounds good they're like no we want this certain thing and we'll spend all this time and all this and you know there's bands who have uh, you know missed deadlines on records and delayed you know for months and even you know i've worked on tweaked mixes for like over a year before you know before the client's finally like fine I'm like dude this record sounded fine nine months ago and it's like the average listener is not going to notice any of these changes that we've made you know, and people are recording at home. I think that's an important thing. Don't get so, bo- you know, it's like, I can't move forward with working on this song till the snare drum sounds like this. And it's like, dude, it doesn't, I mean, it's important. Stuff needs to sound good, but it's not, you know, if the song is good, it's not going to matter for snare drum. It's even pretty bad sounding, you know.
0: Yeah. It's like that saying, uh, what is it? Songs are never finished. They're always abandoned or something like Exa- that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Get it. And To me, I kind of live, I've learned to live, you know, it, fight, it fights against the OCD because I always, you know, I used to have a specific vision. And when I was a kid, I, I went through the, I understand the artists, you know, they have something in their head and they want it to be that. But as the older I've gotten, the more, more I realized that's not as important. And, and the reality of it is that vision you had that you think is amazing. You will realize that, that, maybe it was not that it was as amazing as you thought it was or sometimes you realize like hey this this was actually a lot of artists you know they write a record and they're like they think their new album's better but really their old album's better and they don't realize it until 10 years later they're like dude our earlier stuff you know it's like metallica like their earlier stuff was just i'm sorry it's just better you know to pretty much everybody you know master of puppets was you know i'm sure that every new album they wrote they are like This reload album's amazing, you know. (laughs) But it's like, you know, it probably is to some people, but the majority of people are like, dude, Master Puppets is way better, you know. It's like, but the thing, the the fact of the matter is, your opinions will change. Like I said, I mean, so, you know, it's kind of like just get it to where it's like, this is good. I'm stoked. And let's, you know, I've had some clients, you know, they'll, they'll mess with stuff so much where, we got so far away from the original sounds and original goal and vision that it's actually worse it would you know like i'm like dude it was better before you know everything we've done to change the sounds has stripped the life out of it uh, just because you heard a new band and you like their tones now and you were stoked on somebody else when you recorded the record 3 months ago <laughs> you know now you're going in a totally different direction we didn't track it with that in mind you know all you know it's like that's uh, it just creates problems that's what you know you know from being in this so long and being, you know, as old as I am now, whatever, you know, I've seen that it's just, it's good to just get it rocking and and just move forward. You know, just as long as it doesn't sound bad, you know, just as long as it's off putting, there's never going to be that ultimate sound, like the ultimate vocal tone or whatever. Like you're, you're, I'm not saying absolutely wasted time. It's a good experiment and try to get better tones, of course, or whatever.
0: But it's never going to be perfect. And, and you know, all those people that chase guitar tones and that kind of stuff, it's like, if there was one perfect guitar tone, we would all have it. We wouldn't have different amps. And when you listen to every recording, it's always a different tone. Like, there's always a difference. And so you're going to, you're just going to find what works for you and what works for the song in the moment and
1: enjoy it. Yeah. If anything, focus on the experimentation, focus on finding unique sounds, finding unique uh, vibes, things of that nature. Don't, uh, don't focus on this one exact sound that's in your head. Like, just find it, you know, find something, you know, and maybe, um, because usually what's in your head is something you've heard before and you will want it for yourself, you know. And that's just, it's just not going to get you anywhere. I think in the long run, you know, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of if you're if you sound exactly like your three favorite bands or whatever, it's like their fans might kind of be like, That's cool, but a lot of their fans would be like, Oh, they're ripping these guys off, and that's not good either, you know. Uh so you know, it's a you know, you might get a few of the people who are like looking for more of what their favorite bands are, and you might get a few of those guys. But I mean ultimately like, you know, like Slayer doesn't sound like Pantera and Metallica and you know all the old school bands they all had similar qualities they all had punchy aggressive metal sound but they all had a different enough sound you hear their guitar tone you're like that slayer you hear the the drum sound you're like that's pantera you hear you know whatever it, to me i think that's what made these bands stand out and what made them all the amphitheater sized bands they were you know uh, and it's uh you know if you hear a band a lot of these the new bands coming out like like i have no idea who you know sometimes maybe you can tell the, the vocals vocalist but then like that guitar sounds exactly like the same plug in that 20 other you know in a drum sounds I'm like up oh, that's steven slate and you know it's like <laughs> uh, uh you know it's like to me i'm almost like what is the point in this it's like they're never going to sound like that live i mean it's just you know uh, unless you go and trigger steven slate samples and whatever else and you know i don't know
0: that's a great spot to end off there i, I think it, you, you hit the nail on the head there about you know just getting just getting the songs done and getting them out. And, you know, if think about how many hit songs there are now, and if those people had just humming and about getting the right tone, we, we might never, ever have heard those songs. So, you know, you just got to get them out, right? Yeah. Well, well, Jamie, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to do this. Um, for people who might want to follow you online and learn a little bit more about you and, and your studio, how can they do that?
1: Uh, well, there's, uh, you know, my website, jamiekingaudio.com. Should be pretty easy to find. And then I have my you know, classes and things on creative life. Uh, there's, I think there's links on my site for all that stuff, or whatever they can check that out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's the main, main place to check out. I have a awesome. tone crate. If people use Kemper, they can, if they want to uh, jam some of my actual studio tones, it's on the, it's in the uh, tone crates Kemper bundle. Um, we, they flew up here from Texas and, Grabbed all the, the sounds that I've used for BT-BAM and Contortions and all these bands. and just amps I've had in the studio for years. Very cool.
0: And lastly, any cool projects that you're currently working on right now that uh, are going to be released sometime soon that you're excited to talk about? Uh, that you can yeah, talk about?
1: Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's some few cool stuff that I can't talk about. Uh, uh, BT-BAM just recently released the remix of their first album. Uh, I mean, I'm proud of that. I'm fi- happy to finally get that. that. That was recorded live in my parents' basement. But I've got you know the band Kanashi I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, they're uh, just finished up their mix on their records coming out with Sony Equ- uh, through Sony Equal Equ- Vision and uh, and a band called uh, Cryptodira from New York as well or from up north as well. Uh, they uh, I think their records coming out with uh, uh, what's the, I can't remember the record label off the top of my head right now. It's a Good Fight I believe. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, but yeah, we just finished up their record, and it's uh, both these bands are amazing what they do. It's definitely prog stuff, but both have very unique uh, vibe, and uh, I think we were able to realize something something special and unique with uh, both releases.
0: That's amazing. Well, I'm really excited to check those out.
1: Awesome, man. Well, I definitely appreciate you having me.
0: Well, thank you again for being on there. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, brother.
0: So that was my interview with Jamie King, and that was a lot of fun to record. He shared so much good stuff in there, and I hope that you can take a lot of the information he gave us and implement this into your own mixes. I think that he did a great job of explaining, you know, his process of producing bands and helping them write for the genre and, you know, getting the right sound to meet the demands of the industry. And I also found it really fascinating to hear his whole process of recording guitars and, you know, using the Tube Screamer as a tool in your signal chain to clean up the sound and get more attack. It's a really cool approach that I've definitely seen used before, but the way he described it really helped to put into perspective the exact reason for using the Tube Screamer. And I also thought it was really cool to hear how he uses automation with EQ in the mixes, because that's a really cool technique that a lot of people don't think of. We always think of automation as a tool for volume, but when you use it with EQ, you can really help to create a lot of clarity in your mix and create space for other instruments to shine. So very cool that Jamie was talking about that. And it's definitely something that you're going to want to try in your next mix. So Jamie, thank you once again for being on the podcast. Lots of great information here, and I'd love to have you back on the show anytime. I also want to thank you, the listener, for sticking around to the very end and joining me today. Really appreciate it. And if you found this episode helpful, make sure to go on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. That helps me drastically. It allows me to get in front of more people and allow other people who are maybe curious in the podcast and maybe they're debating whether or not they should listen to it or not. By having a review in there and letting people know what they can expect, it will allow more people to get exposed to the show. And that is what this is all about, helping more people make better music music and helping to share the love of music production. So make sure to do that. And also, if this is your first time or even if it's your 50th time listening to the Master Your Mix podcast, make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And if you haven't got it already on the website, I've got a free download. It's called the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes and walks you through all of the settings that you can easily implement into your mixes in terms of what to boost, what to cut, how to dial in your compression settings. And by having this resource here, it allows you to make decisions quickly and not have to go through so much trial and error figuring out what you should do in your mixes. This will definitely help pinpoint exactly where you need to pay attention to and help you make better mixes faster. So once again, make sure to check that out, MasterYourMix.com. That's it for today's episode, guys. Can't wait to talk to you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to... Questions at MasterYourMix.com Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com